Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 21st of October 2022. From the news section... Rwanda plan airline privilege style pulls out of home office deportation scheme. Report by Hamish Morrison. The airline contracted to fly asylum seekers to Rwanda has pulled out of the contract with the home office. Privilege Airlines, based in Mallorca, has confirmed that it will not run the flights to support the controversial policy. It was involved in a botched attempt to fly a number of asylum seekers to the African nation earlier this year which was stopped after an 11th hour block by judges halted the flight. Freedom from Torture has been involved in the efforts to stop the policy from going ahead and said it had received confirmation in an email from an airline it was no longer working with the Home Office. The policy to send asylum seekers to Rwanda has been bitterly fought against by human rights campaigners who say the plans are contrary to international laws protecting refugees. A spokesperson for Privileged Style told The National, We will never operate the flight to Rwanda since the one scheduled in June 2022. The reason for this controversy was suspended and never flew. We won't operate flights to Rwanda in the future. In a video posted to Twitter, Freedom from Torture employee and torture survivor Kobiasa Hasui welcomed the news. He said, People, we did it. Privileged Style just announced that they will be bailing out of the Rwanda plan. I am so excited. People, we did it. You know together we have the power. We emailed them, we phoned them, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all over the place and the pressure mounted and finally paid off. It is currently not known whether the move leaves the government without an operator to support the policy. A spokesperson for the Home Office said, We remain committed to our world-leading migration partnership with Rwanda, which will see those who come to the UK through dangerous, illegal and unnecessary routes relocated to Rwanda to rebuild their lives there. Rwanda is a safe and secure country with a strong record of supporting asylum seekers and we will continue to robustly defend the partnership in the courts. We do not comment on operational matters. And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National. Friday the 21st of October 2022. From the politics section. Bonfire night protest. Scots urged to travel to London for mass election protest on Guy Fawkes Day. Report by Hamish Morrison. Scots have been urged to travel to London to take to the streets of Westminster in a bid to fail the government in a Guy Fawkes Day protest. A bus, which has been organised by Yesar Jonathan Shafi, will transport protesters from Glasgow to London on November the 5th for a mass protest aimed at triggering a general election. Shafi said the government brought by a year of unprecedented scandal and chaos, was in a state of collapse and that ordinary people could not rely on politicians to resolve this crisis. It comes after Liz Truss announced on Thursday that she would step down as Prime Minister after she lost control of the Tory party. 
already in disarray following the failure of the mini-budget, which had to be abandoned after bringing the country close to a full-blown financial crisis. A statement posted to the page selling tickets for the coach journey read, The government is tearing itself apart as in a state of collapse. This is not just a crisis of the Tory party. It is a crisis of the whole political and economic system. Fundamental to that is a lack of democracy. As the drama unfolds on our television screens, people face a dark cost of living emergency. It cannot be left to the politicians to try to resolve this crisis. We need a huge display of people power in favour of democracy and to oppose yet more austerity being thrown at the working class communities up and down the land. It is time to bring this government down. The protest, organised by the People's Assembly, promised to shut down London for the day to demand an election. The Conservative government is facing calls from Labour, the SNP, the Lib Dems and even some of its own MPs to hold a general election. It comes as a new poll released on Friday showed the Tories could suffer a near total electoral wipeout at the next election. You can find out more about the event and buy tickets online at eventbrite.com And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Friday the 21st of October 2022, from the news section, Teenager arrested in Edinburgh over brutal murder of 19-year-old man in London. Article by Catherine Hay. A teenage boy has been arrested in Scotland in connection with a man's murder in London. Police detained a 17-year-old in Edinburgh on Wednesday. He was then transferred to a London police station. Kane Moses, 19, died after being stabbed on Tottenham High Road near the Holcomb Market on Friday, September the 30th. Police were called at 5.30pm after reports of a, an altercation. A post-mortem examination ruled Mr Moses died from a stab wound to the chest. The Met's murder probe was led by Detective Inspector Daniel Catmull, who, before the arrest, said, My heart goes out to the family of this young man. They have been supported by specialist officers and I can assure them of my total commitment to finding and bringing to justice whoever was responsible for this brutal attack. Witnesses and those with information are actually called 101, quoting reference 5327 of September the 30th. For anonymity, independent charity Crime Stoppers can be called on 0800 555 That's 0800 And that report was by Catherine Hay. This is from the National, 24th of October 2022, from the News Section. BBC News presenter Martin Croxell taken off air over Boris Johnson reaction. Article by Kieran Doody. BBC News presenter Martin Croxell has been pulled off air following a potential breach of impartiality on Sunday evening, according to reports. Croxell was presenting the papers on Sunday evening when she seemingly laughed at a joke aimed at former Prime Minister Boris Johnson after he pulled out of the Tory leadership race. The PA news agency understand she has now been taken off air following the potential breach. During her introduction to the programme, which started at 10.30pm on Sunday, around 90 minutes after Boris Johnson pulled out of the Tory leadership race, Croxwell said, Well, this is all very exciting, isn't it? Adding, Am I allowed to be this gleeful? Well, I am. In her first question to her guest, she also remarked, Can we even show you the front pages just yet? Have they arrived? No, they haven't arrived. It's all a little bit, you know, 
lastminute.com, isn't it? Because all the front pages were probably out of date by the time we received them. Some viewers, including several Tory MPs, reacting to a clip on social media complained it displayed bias. A statement from broadcaster said, BBC News is urgently viewing last night's edition of the papers on a news channel for a potential breach of impartiality. It is imperative that we maintain the highest editorial standards. We have processes in place to uphold our standards and these processes have been activated. That article was by Kieran Doody. From the National, 24th of October 2022, from the news section. Probe launched into Chris Pincher over scandal which saw Boris Johnson quit by Hamish Morrison. A probe has been launched into the sex pest accused former Tory whip whose scandalous resignation triggered the collapse of Boris Johnson's government. Chris Pincher is now officially under investigation over allegations which he denies. He groped a man in a private members club in London earlier this year. The former Tory deputy chief whip who dramatically quit his government role on June the 30th after allegedly assaulting two fellow guests at the exclusive Carlton Club in London the evening before is under investigation by the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards. Catherine Stone opened an investigation on October 20, citing actions causing significant damage to the reputation of the House as a whole or of its members generally. Pincher was the Tory MP for Tamworth in Staffordshire but now sits as an independent in the Commons after the Conservative whip was removed following a formal complaint to the parliamentary watchdog that examines allegations of bullying, harassment or sexual misconduct. The Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme reportedly dropped the complaint in the first instance because the alleged incident did not occur on the parliamentary estate. It has now confirmed an investigation will take place. Stone, the Commissioner for Standards in Parliament, is responsible for alleged breaches of the Commons Code of Conduct. Pincher's bombshell resignation triggered a fresh wave of controversy just days after the launch of an investigation into whether the former Prime Minister had lied to Parliament over the Partygate scandal. But Johnson's government ploughed on until ministers began to grow concerned over the changing story coming out of Downing Street about who knew what and when about Pincher. It emerged that Johnson had previously promoted Pincher during his time at the Foreign Office, despite being aware of similar and unresolved allegations about the MP. Sadi Javid, then Health Secretary, announced he would quit on July 5th, followed seconds later by ex-Chancellor Rishi Sunak, triggering a tsunami of resignations. A mountain of ministers and other officials resigned in the ensuing exodus from government and Johnson was forced to announce his intention to quit on July 7th. He would not officially step down until September 6th. That article was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Monday the 24th of October 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, God knows what next PM is promising to God knows who. There is a strong possibility we could learn as early as today which new Prime Minister will be foisted upon us. The rules of the hastily arranged contest mean that only those hopefuls who can garner the support of at least a hundred of their colleagues will make it onto the final ballot. At present, and I accept that trying to predict what's happening within the Conservative Party at the moment is a task only the most dedicated sociopath is qualified for, it looks as though Rishi Sunak will make it through. Whether we will see the coronation or contest will depend largely on the whims and wants of Boris Johnson and his deluded fandom. The first candidate to declare was Penny Mordaunt, 
The frontrunner, Rishi Sunak, who already has more than 100 MPs publicly backing him, only deigned to inform the public of his intention to stand yesterday. At some point, the Conservative Party has to reach peak stupidity. There has to be a limit to the number of outrageous stunts it is allowed to pull and the depths of which it is content to sink. To be clear, we're talking about the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. This person has been chosen at a time of extraordinary economic and political instability, caused by the incompetence of the previous Tory Prime Minister, who was chosen for us and chucked out before she'd even finished her probationary period. Only the Tories can take an already unfair and undemocratic process and somehow conspire to make it even less so. The two out of the best chance of winning the contest have con- conducted their campaigns behind closed doors. They are promising God knows what to God knows who and the public is told simply to wait and see what happens. To her credit, and we're really scraping the barrel here, at least Penny Morton has the guts to announce her campaign early and agree to be interviewed by journalists. I'm well aware how patently ridiculous that sentence is. We are at the point where the bare minimum from a wannabe Prime Minister is worthy of comment. During an interview with Sun- Sunday with Lorna Koonsberg on the BBC, Morton refused to say what her policies would be if she were chosen as leader. She wouldn't be drawn on how she plans to deal with the cost of living crisis, falling living standards and rising energy bills. She said nothing of use or note, yet somehow still wins the title of being the most transparent leadership candidate. For that reason, and many, many more, this contest has no credibility and no moral authority. What makes this ridiculous situation even worse is that the Tories are not even trying to give the impression they are acting with the public interest in mind. This week, we will have a new Prime Minister, and whoever that is will face no scrutiny from journalists or the public. They will either be chosen by a small number of Conservative Party members or an even smaller number of Tory MPs. Amid all this chaos, we were told a general election would be too disruptive, which is a bit like watching your house burn down and refusing to phone the fire brigade because you're worried about getting the laminate floors wet. How much more we expect to put up with a government solely focused on its own self-interest? How many more examples do we need of this unfitness to govern? Last week, we heard a lot about the so-called grown-up Tories who were waiting in the wings to save the day. I wonder... Are these the same grown-ups who stood back and watched Boris Johnson trash parliamentary standards? The ones who let him break things without consequence and only intervened when he turned his attentions to breaking their party? Some of the Tory MPs who publicly expressed their lack of confidence in Johnson during the dying hours of his premiership now claim what the country really needs right now is to bring back Boris. Forget choosing your next Prime Minister, you couldn't trust these people with a pair of toddler safety scissors. The next few days are going to be dominated by the ongoing Tory psychodrama. But in many ways, it has never mattered so little who our next Prime Minister is. We already know that anybody chosen from and and by that bunch of rotten, self-centred careers won't be fit to hold high office. Forget the lies and spin about seeking stability. If they wanted stability, they would call a general election. They won't, of course, because they know that when the time comes for us to have our say on the record in government, I read it will be as conclusive as it is brutal. And that was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Tuesday the 25th of August 2022, from the news section, Foods prices skyrocket by up to 65% in one year, ONS data shows. Report by Xander Eliards. 
The prices of staple foods in UK supermarkets have gone up by as much as 65% in the past year, according to new data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS. The ONS figures, collated from millions of prices across supermarket websites every month, suggest that the price of pasta has gone up by 60% in the past 12 months, the price of tea has risen by 46%, bread by 38%, and biscuits by 34%. Vegetable oil prices have risen by a massive 65% over the past year, with a spike of 46% over j- just the past five months. The ONS further said that four grocery items had seen the prices fall over the past year. Orange juice by 9%, beef by 7%, sugar by 0.3%, and rice by 0.2%. The Highly experimental data looked at any changes in the cost of 30 different food staples from September 2021 to September 2022, scraping around 1.5 million prices from supermarket websites every month. The ONS said that while there is a lot of variation at the individual item level, overall the lowest prices of the 30 everyday items weighed by retailer an item rose by 17% in the year to September 2022. This, it is noted, was broadly similar to the trend in the equivalent official measure of inflation for food and drink, which showed a 15% rise in prices over the past year. The ONS also revealed data which found that more than 7 in 10 people using prepayment meters have been finding it hard to afford their energy bills at the start of October. The figures show over half, 55%, of disabled adults reported finding it difficult to afford their energy bills, and around a third, 36%, found it difficult to afford their rent or mortgage payments compared with 40% and 27% of non-disabled people, respectively. The data body said that the figures used new data sources and near real-time surveys to give fresh insights into exactly how prices are changing at a detailed level and which groups of people are are most affected by recent changes in the cost of living. Alison Thewlis, the SNP Shadow Chancellor, said that people cannot go on like this. The Glasgow Central MP said, The Tories have been a disaster for the economy. With every day, more damage unfolds, showing Scotland needs independence to escape the constant crisis of Westminster control. Under the Tories, inflation has run out of control, mortgage rates are at their highest since the financial crash, and energy bills have more than doubled. We cannot go on like this. There must be a general election so voters can have their say in the way forward. After a decade of Tory cuts and Brexit damage, the UK already had the worst levels of poverty in Northwest Europe, and many families were struggling to get by on stagnant incomes. Now this Tory economic crisis has become a full-on emergency. National statistician Ian Diamond said, While the recent spike in inflation began with energy prices, today's fresh insights use a new innovative data source to show they are now filtering through to other important items, with the cheapest price of some staple food items rising by about two-thirds in the last year. Figures from a near real-time survey of people show that while rises in food and energy costs are affecting many people across the country, those who are disabled, from certain ethnic minority backgrounds, and renters are among those struggling the most. With rises in the cost of living at the forefront of many people's minds, our new, almost real-time, data showing just how prices are changing and shining a light and how different groups are affected have never been more important. The news comes just one week after the ONS said that the rate of consumer price index inflation 
rose to 10.1% in September. And that article is by Xander Eliards. From the National, Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the news section, Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak's rise to Prime Minister is groundbreaking milestone, report by Gregor Young. It is a groundbreaking milestone that Rishi Sunak will become UK's next Prime Minister, US President Joe Biden has said as he marked Diwali. Biden said at an event in Washington on Monday evening, it matters that for the first time a person of colour, who is also the child of Indian immigrants, will rise to the highest political office in the country. And whether it's the United Kingdom, where just today we've got news that Rishi Sunak is now the Prime Minister. As my brother would say, go figure, Biden said. And the Conservative Party, expected to become the Prime Minister, I think, tomorrow when he goes to see the King. Pretty astounding. A groundbreaking milestone. And it matters. It matters. Diwali is a five-day festival of lights and a celebration by Hindus, Sikhs and Jains of the triumph of good over evil. Sunat's grandparents were from Punjab state before Indian subcontinent was divided into two countries, India and Pakistan, in 1947, after British colonial rule ended. His family settled in the UK in the 1960s and he was born in Southampton in 1980. His rise to power has prompted a sense of pride among Indians, with that country's leader, Narendra Modi, Ehler offer him special Diwali wishes as the living bridge of UK Indians. Prime Minister Modi tweeted, As you become UK PM, I look forward to working closely together on global issues and implementing Roadmap 2030. Special Diwali wishes to the living bridge of UK Indians as we transform our historic ties into a modern partnership. Sunak won the Tory leadership contest without a vote being cast after rivals Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson dropped out and will replace Liz Truss at number 10 on Tuesday. Indian media were impressed by his victory, with New Delhi Television announcing Indian sun rises over the empire and India Today News Channel taking a jibe at the UK's economic and political turbulence, using the Hindi term for someone of Indian background. Batter Britain gets Desi, Big Boss. And that report was by Gregor Young. From the National, Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the news section. When do the clocks go back 2022? Exact day British summertime ends this week. By Kieran Doody, UK's trending editor. With the month of October almost over, the days are getting shorter and shorter with winter just around the corner. It means the date clocks go back across the UK is just around the corner, giving us an extra hour of sunlight as we approach the darker months. Here is everything you need to know about clock changes in the UK this year. When does the hour go back? In autumn the clocks will go back at 2am on the final Sunday of October, which this year falls on Sunday the 30th of October. It means an extra hour in bed for your Sunday lion and will give an extra hour of daylight as the darker nights roll in. Do I need to change the clocks myself? In the majority of cases, the days of manually changing your clocks are long gone. Any device connected to the internet such as smartphones, televisions, laptops and tablets will change automatically. However, be careful, alarm clocks, car radios and other devices not connected to the internet will need to be adjusted manually. To avoid confusion over the time, there is a simple saying from the US to remember when to change your clock forward or back. Spring forward, fall back.
Why do we change the clocks? The principal reason we change the clocks is to get most the most out of the daylight. The first clock change was introduced by the German government in 1916 during the First World War as a means of saving energy. The longer the daylight hours lasted, the less electricity they required. Many European governments followed suit, including Britain, and so was born BST, with the current system in place since 1971. And that report was by Kieran Doody. From The National of Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the comment section. Canada's Quebec question offers insight for the UK by Luke James. A pro-independence party seeking a second referendum becomes the official opposition in the House of Commons amid economic turmoil which ended two terms of majority Conservative government. That would be the astonishing outcome of a UK general election if one were held today according to current polling. It's a scenario that one SNP MP simply laughed off when I raised it with them this week, but one taken seriously enough by Conservatives to mean there won't be an election any time soon. If there was a general election tomorrow, which of course there won't be, we'd be a smaller party than the SNP, Conservative MP Sir Charles Walker told the BBC this week. And they might well take such a humbling prospect seriously, because as unlikely as it seems, there is precedent for exactly that scenario. Back in October 1993, the Bloc Québécois became the official opposition in the Canadian Parliament's lower house, also known as the House of Commons, after a watershed election in which the Progressive Conservative Party were swept from office after nine years in power amid discontent among voters of their handling of a global economic downturn. The bloc had been formed just two years earlier to represent Quebec's interests at federal level by formerly Conservative MPs in response to the failure to deliver on constitutional reform known as the Meech Lake Accord, which would have handed greater autonomy to Quebec. Winning half of the vote in Quebec and 54 of Canada's 295 seats in their first electoral test, the bloc's influence was increased by the emergence of another new party, Reform, which further splintered Conservative support and left the bloc as the second largest force in the Commons. What happened next gives as close an insight as is possible to gain on how such a scenario could play out in the UK, and it's one that might provide some reassurance for those south of the border. I think people outside Quebec found the situation weird and anomalous, Professor David Cameron of the University of Toronto told The National. But fairly quickly, as I recall, there was an adjustment to the new reality. The bloc did not seek to disrupt Parliament or bring its business to a grinding halt. The current month 
and talk of Quebec nationalists might bring to the minds of many Canadians the October crisis of 1970, during which the country's Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, had sent the military onto the streets of Quebec in response to the kidnapping and murder of a federal government minister by the extremist Front de Libération de Québec. The bloc's founder and leader, Lucien Bouchard, couldn't have been further removed from that image. A former lawyer, Canadian ambassador to France and federal environment minister, Bouchard was an establishment figure who was already well known and respected outside of Quebec. And he immediately went out of his way to settle nerves in English-speaking Canada. With a neat side parting, a conservative dark blue suit and pointedly speaking in measured English, he cut a reassuring figure at a post-election press conference in which he told journalists, I think it's not possible to pave the road to sovereignty in raising hell. When the Canadian Parliament reconvened in January 1994, Bouchard didn't mention Quebec once in his first appearance as leader of the opposition. Instead, he dedicated all three of the questions afforded to the leader of the opposition in the Canadian House of Commons to scrutinising the Liberal government's plans to reduce the country's fiscal deficit through cuts to social spending. One of the biggest questions stemming from the scenario set out in current UK polls is what approach an SNP opposition would take to non-devolved issues. In the case of Canada, the bloc examined legislation not relevant to Quebec through an ideological lens, that of the centre-left, said Professor André Lecour, an expert on nationalism in both Quebec and Scotland from the University of Ottawa. Even if the Liberal government were facing a party that had no desire to replace them, the bloc were an excellent official opposition, said Lecour, and what comes and that comes from someone who has never voted for the bloc. The party obviously criticised Canadian federalism at every opportunity, but it never sought to disrupt or sabotage the functioning of the Canadian Federation. But however disarming and constructive Bouchard may have been in the Canadian capital of Ottawa, his role as leader of the federal opposition gave him an unrivaled platform to campaign for independence from it. He is credited with turning around the fortunes of the Yes campaign during Quebec's second independence referendum in 1995. The shift in momentum this time around was caused primarily by the decision of Quebec's Premier, Jacques Parizeau, to turn over principal leadership of the flagging yes side to Lucien Bouchard, leader of the separatist party in the federal government, reported the Washington Post at the time. The leader of the Canadian opposition took the Yes campaign within 55,000 votes of victory, but the referendum nonetheless ended in a second defeat, the consequences of which are still playing out today. 
Bouchard went on to replace Parisot as the Parti Québec, Roi Premier of Quebec. But three decades after his federal breakthrough, independence barely figured as an issue in the Quebec elections earlier this month. And bringing history full circle, the Parti Québécois has been usurped as the country's dominant political force by a conservative split from it founded by one of Bouchard's own former ministers. A cautionary tale, as much for the SNP then, as for the Conservative Party. This article was by Luke James. From the National of Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the comment section, Jerry Hassan, defeating this present vision of Toryism is far from a sure thing. The Tory shenanigans of the past week beggar belief, but they are about more than personalities and Tory soap opera. They fully demonstrate the moral implosion of the Tories, the UK's limited democracy and the decline of government and politics. Rishi Sunak is the UK's first Premier of Asian heritage. He becomes Prime Minister having given no interviews, with no scrutiny of his plans, no mandate and little legitimacy. After Liz Truss's weak win through gaining 81,326 Tory members' votes, we face a Sunak reign after he was rejected in the same contest seven weeks ago, with the support this time of apparently 200 Tory MPs. The Tory selectorate is getting smaller and smaller with each contest, and if they keep up this continual contraction, at some point they will eventually return to the feudal nature of the Tory magic circle, which produced leaders from soundings and gave the country Harold Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume. Boris Johnson remains unrepentant. Such is the debased state of right-wing commentary that Tim Stanley of the Daily Telegraph compared his prospective return to that of Napoleon, ignoring that he was a dictator and emperor and met his fate at Waterloo. Robert Peston noted that seven weeks on the back benches, much of which in reality has been spent abroad on holiday and undertaking speaking engagements, was hardly biblical penance, observing that, quotes, his hero Churchill was in the wilderness for a decade before redemption. The Tories have now, now faced fratricide, bitter division and infighting, a Sunak premiership will be one of which we have little detail, but we know the trajectory. Significant public spending cuts and austerity, worse than Cameron Osborne, more painful in the context of the cost of living crisis and rising inflation. The right-wing agenda of trusonomics and trickle-down has been exposed as a fantasy world. Yet such is the mantra and make-believe on the right that significant forces in Tory land will not give up on their dream. 
This mindset has become supported by a right-wing ecology of dark money, hedge fund capitalists, self-appointed buccaneers and bloviators, and right-wing organisations including the so-called think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs, Centre for Policy Studies and Taxpayers Alliance, who coalesce around Tufton Street in Westminster alongside The Spectator, Daily Telegraph, Mail and Express. The wider context of this is the atrophy and hollowing out of what passes for British democracy and its capture by a narrow right-wing elite who believe that they know best and are impatient with any discussion or wider concerns. There is a distinct class dimension to this, as the British establishment has shifted from old to new monies and elites, while having the same sense of entitlement and innate sense of its own superiority. Writer and MI5 agent John Le Carre commented upon the Oxbridge dominance of the British intelligence world. For a while you wondered whether the fools were pretending to be fools as some kind of deception, or whether there was a real efficient service somewhere else. The grim reality, like Tree's Tories and establishment, he noted was widespread mediocrity, like the amorphous quality of an old-school outing on the Orient Express. It is only in this context that the brazen nature of Toryism can be explained. Five prime ministers in six years, the continual zigzagging of Toryism in the past 12 years from Cameron to Osborne austerity, the moral debasement of Boris Johnson and political idiocy of Liz Truss and the fact they believe they can get away with this. The entire direction of the Conservative Party is to continue dismantling the last elements of protection that people in the UK still have welfare, employment and social rights, so that the forces of capital have free reign to exploit, hire and fire and treat workers in the most Dickensian way possible. Last weekend I travelled to Dundee, my home city, and visited the Verdant Works, a museum to the history of the jute industry situated in an old mill complex. There I met Lily Thompson, who worked in the mills from 1954 to the decline of the industry and described the harsh factory environment and the culture of harsh exploitation where she earned a shilling a day when she first started. This is not some distant Victorian tale, but from 1950s post-war Britain, when living standards were rising and working-class prosperity was becoming a major factor in changing attitudes and society. Yet even in the midst of what became known as the Age of Affluence, there was capitalist exploitation, brutal employer behaviour and significant hardship. None of this should be forgotten in the present. There is a tendency with the rightward drift of the Tories from Thatcher to get all rosy-eyed about the Britain of 1945-79. to 79. 
It was certainly a country defined by more equality and less poverty than how the UK evolved post-1979. But there never was a golden age, and British capitalism has always had at its heart an appalling lack of humanity and disregard and disdain for the interests of workers. Rishi Sunak also marks another watershed in British Prime Ministers. He is, in the words of Aditya Chakrabarti of The Guardian, the UK's first Goldman Sachs Prime Minister. And in the judgment of the Daily Mirror's Kevin Maguire, for all the talk of diversity, quotes, another privately schooled, hugely wealthy and privileged Tory banker. End of quotation. This is the age of what Fraser Nelson has called illiberal conservatism, one the spectator has been more than happy to endorse and promote, that is filled with prejudice, bigotry and open contempt for people different from Tory Britain. Sunak at 42 is the youngest British Prime Minister since the notorious Lord Liverpool Prime Minister from 1812 to 1827, who was deeply authoritarian, suspended trial by habeas corpus and, following the Peterloo Massacre, passed the Gag Acts restricting freedom of speech and suppressing trade unions. One cannot imagine Sunak will go down this route, but it should remind us that Tory anti-democracy and attacking human rights and civil liberties is not something just of recent invention. Tories have always viewed democracy as something to be jettisoned when it is inconvenient or clashes with their self-interest. The Tory ideology, which has shaped the past 12 years of government and past four decades of the UK, is not going away. Nor is the ultra-right-wing ideological dogmatists who provided the backdrop to trusonomics. Alongside this, there will be the continuation of an inflexible unionism towards Northern Ireland, heading to a car crash with the EU and Scotland. The former will showcase the first example of how far Sunak, a Brexiteer, is prepared to roll back from the headbangers. A second will be the Liz Truss-introduced bill stripping the UK of 2,400 EU-inspired regulations by the end of 2023 and which would take the UK dramatically backwards. This Tory worldview and the apologists who have accommodated it in all the mainstream parties of the UK and Scotland has to be taken on, challenged and defeated. Its economic conceit and deception have been able to get away with so much due to the concentrations of power and influence at the heart of the unreformed British state, which despite everything Labour cling to, along with Brexit. As the example of Lily in the Dundee Jute Mill shows, there can be no harking back to some golden past of Britain and Scotland and the 1945-79 period. We have to embrace the future 
name the Conservative order which has in Tory circles misgoverned the UK and peddled the economic interests of a narrow class as uncontested. The Tory ship is in rocky waters, but defeating its influence across the political spectrum, including in Scotland, is not a given. This article was by Jerry Hassan. From the National, Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the Sports Section. Ex-Rangers striker backs Napoli to land first Serie A in 33 years, but dismisses their Champions League chances. Former Rangers striker Marco Negri has predicted that Napoli can maintain their impressive start to the season and win their first Serie A title in 33 years, but dismissed their chances of lifting the Champions League. Luciano Spalletti's side restored their three-point lead over defending champions AC Milan in the league when they defeated the Roma team managed by Jose Marino 1-0 in the Olympic Stadium on Sunday evening. The Stadio Diego Armando Maradona outfit have now gone 11 games undefeated in the Italian top flight in the 2022-23 campaign and their supporters are hopeful they can prevail for the first time since 1990. Negri believes that Giovanni Di Lorenzo and his teammates are capable of doing so but thinks winning the Champions League is beyond them even though they have won their first four Group A matches and are on top of their section. Napoli only won 1-0 against Roma on Sunday night, he said, as he looked ahead to their game against Rangers tomorrow evening. But Roma are a tough, tough team. They had a very solid game at the back and Roma didn't have any real scoring chances. It's still early in the season, but I think they can win Serie A. They have quality in every position, they have a player who can make a difference and they have an excellent manager. Every player on the pitch knows what they have to do. I think they can maintain their start. I think the only problem they have is that the league will stop next month when the World Cup is played. It is almost as if they have two seasons in one. When you are flying, when you are on fire, you want to play every week. You don't want to stop. But for me, they are the favourites for the title. Asked if he thought Napoli could win the Champions League for the first time in their history, Negri said, I don't think so. I believe they will go forward in the knockout rounds, but I still believe there are four or five teams who are stronger than them right now. They beat Liverpool comfortably in their group game in Naples early this season, but I still believe Liverpool, Manchester City, PSG and Bayern Munich are stronger. This article was by Matthew Lindsay. From The National, Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the Sports Section. Joe Hart points to Manchester City Champions League teething problems as he vows Celtic players will learn from experience. By Graham McGarry. With the greatest of respect to the current Celtic squad, Joe Hart has been part of more talented groups. Perhaps none more so than when he was at Manchester City, where he eventually kept goal for a side that made it all the way to the semi-finals of the competition. That progress did not, however, happen overnight. Hart recalls some bruising experiences for that star-studded group of players against the likes of Barcelona and even CSKA Moscow before they finally found their feet in the competition. 
so he is not surprised in the slightest that Celtic have had to take a few dull ones this season as they attempt to acclimatise themselves at Champions League level, and neither is he discouraged by it. In fact, the level of performance they have managed to produce tells him that they aren't quite as far away from competing against the best teams in Europe as the Group F standings might have you believe. When we started at City, we weren't full of Champions League experience, Hart said. Maybe a little more than we have here. But it's not about the club itself. Celtic does and will belong here. You have to look at the squads and who has played at this level. We're relatively new to it. That's not an excuse. We certainly don't hide behind it. And the club doesn't expect a bedding-in period. You want to be at the top. You want to be fighting and beating the best. I don't think it's anything apart from falling the wrong side of a couple of results. I don't think anyone who's been to the games, opposition managers and so on, would have been surprised if we were going to in to match day five with a chance of winning the group or sealing the second place. There's a huge difference from being in a game to actually winning a game at this level. That's been evident here. We've been in all four games and put in strong performances. There's just been some small... There's just been some small moments where experience has helped these sides manage through difficult patches a bit better than we have, and been much more clinical when they've had moments of being on top. It's fun being part of this competition, but you always want the ultimate goal. It's tough. The semi-final is the furthest I've got, and I enjoyed that run. You just need to live in it rather than set any boundaries or targets. What's the point when the sky's the limit? You are part of a team that wants to get bigger and better. Hart is fully convinced by the mantra preached by manager Ange Postacoglu that full commitment to his philosophy is the path to achieving that improvement. It's pretty powerful, it really is, he said. He gives us a lot of belief and we work every day to play a certain way with a certain energy. Why compromise? It's 11 against 11 plus the subs. We believe if we play to our principles, we have as good a chance as anyone. Look, we would much prefer to emerge from the group, but at the same time, if we were getting the victories, we would want to feel that we had done it with what we were trying to do and what we are working on. I think that gives us a better sense of direction and purpose. We are all in this for the long term, trying to create something. The manager is not trying to create something here for any other reason than doing it this way will bring success to this club. Despite conceding 10 goals in their four group games so far, Hart doesn't accept that the strict adherence to Postacoglu's attacking style is leaving them unduly open at the back. We are slightly vulnerable, but any team with any way of playing is exposed, he said. Even if you were to park eight people behind the ball, the pressure is going to increase and increase and increase. We try to do our pressure and our eight men defending really high and get the job done. The transition in the Champions League is a tough one to play against because of the speed and intelligence of the teams that you are playing against. But we have also seen a low block unpicked many, many times. Teams can get really hurt playing the low block. There are teams that have specialised in it over the years. Atletico Madrid springs to mind. But for them to do that, that's not something they just do for the Champions League. Just like we work, they would work on that every day. That's their identity. That's what they do. That's what they believe in and that's why they get results. That's why us doing what we do constantly, we feel will get us results. 
That article was by Graham McGarry. From the National, Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the sports section. Rangers warned they have to tame a monster, the Georgian genius who Napoli fans have dubbed Kvaradona. By Matthew Lindsay. He may never have been a Napoli supporter as such when he was a boy growing up in Italy, but seeing Diego Maradona in action for Gli Azzurri still had a profound effect on Marco Negri. Maradona was one of the reasons that I started to play football, said the former Rangers striker yesterday. I was very young when he joined Napoli, but I would watch him playing for them on TV. He was very, very special and inspired me and a lot of other kids as well. When I would play on the street with my friends, I would pretend that I was Maradona. I would dream of being as great as him one day, but there's no way that was ever going to happen. He was just too good. Sadly, I never got the chance to play against him, but I did get to see him in the flesh. I came through the youth development system at Udinese. I was in their stadium when Maradona played for Napoli and Zico played for Udinese. That was amazing. For Negri and so many others of his generation, there never has been and never will be anyone to touch El Diego. Yet he can fully understand why Kvica Cavatskelia has been dubbed Kvaradona by Napoli supporters and can appreciate why many people believe the Georgian is capable of scaling the same heights in the global game as the Argentinian in future. The 21-year-old, a 13.5 million euro signing from Dinamo Batumi in his homeland back in July, has scored no fewer than seven goals in 15 appearances for Luciani Spalletti's exciting young side in the 2022-23 campaign. He has helped them to go undefeated in Serie A and move three points clear of defending champions AC Milan at the top of the table, as well as win their first four Champions League group games. James Tavernier and his teammates will need to make nullifying the considerable threat posed by the form footballer in the Italian game a priority when they play their fifth Group A match at the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona tomorrow evening. Negri made exactly the same sort of instant impression when he joined Rangers in a 3.5 million transfer from Perugia back in 1997. He netted on no fewer than 23 occasions in his opening 10 outings and had taken his tally to 33 by the turn of the year. After that, he was plagued by injuries and off-field problems. But the 51-year-old, who has worked as a forward coach since retiring from playing, is confident that Karatschkelia can maintain his current hot streak of form, get even better and realise his enormous potential. He is a superb player, he said. In fact, he is a monster. He is a young player, but he has made such an impact. He has very strong legs. He can run. He can shoot. He has scored seven goals and had seven assists already. He is very, very special. He is already a star in Italian football. There are only a few players in world football who make the opposition manager change his tactics to deal with him. He is one of them. As I say, he is still very young, and so he is very coachable. He can improve. He is in the right place just now because Spalletti is renowned for improving young players. He is a jewel, a little treasure. He is special just now. In the future, I don't know. He is not a superstar just now, but he is certainly a rising star. 
If he continues to develop and improve and acquit himself so well in the Champions League, then who knows what he can do in the game. Negri has some bad news for Giovanni von Bronckhorst ahead of his side's rematch with opponents who, after centre-half James Sands had been sent off in the second half, eased to a 3-0 win at Ibrox last month. He warned that Cavascalia is not the only exceptional attacker who Spalletti has at his disposal and urged the manager of his former club to adopt a far defensive game plan in their midweek encounter. Napoli right now are on fire, he said. They are playing fantastic football, which is very nice to watch. They are creating a lot of chances and scoring a lot of goals. Up front, they have a lot of quality. On the left, they have Cavaccelia, and on the right, they have Lozano, Mexican internationalist Hirving. But they have a lot of different players who can play through the middle. Osimen, Nigerian striker Victor, is very good when there are spaces to exploit. Raspadori, Italian cup Giacomo, is extremely technical. Simeone, Argentinian forwards Giovanni, just scores goals, so they can change a game in a game. Negri added, they are the best team in Italy when it comes to building the game from the keeper because they have such talent in their midfield. They can move, they can run, they can pass the ball. If a team presses Napoli very high in the park, it's become a problem for them because they just play the ball to the feet of the three guys they have up front and when it becomes a one-against-one situation, then the team has a serious problem. I think Rangers should approach the game in exactly the same way as they approached their away games in the Europa League last season. Their defence, midfield and striker must be closer together then they can exploit any space which opens up on the counter by getting the ball to the feet of Ryan Kent or Alfredo Morelos. This article was by Matthew Lindsay. From the National of Tuesday the 25th of October 2022, from the comment section, Karen Adam, Scots want a politics for the millions, not the millionaires. I wake in the morning and I step outside. A familiar start to a song which, besides being my friend's top karaoke choice, is a song I replay in my head day in and day out, now particularly as I get to the chorus, What's Going On? It seems as if we are living through a dystopian nightmare which never ceases to throw another plot twist at us. Who knows where we are now as I type. The next hour could be painting a whole other picture across the political spectrum. What does this mean for ordinary folk and where are their voices in all this? I received an email from somebody the other day which I just cannot get out of my mind. A thoughtful gent was talking about his job delivering food. He sees on the ground the needs of others. He takes part in the everyday conversations and he sees and hears the worries of everyday normal folk. He concludes that we, be should, we should be thinking more of the millions, not the millionaires. He is actively listening and understands. What are we doing for those who just want to live their lives in peace and enjoy living? Where are the voices of the millions? And why are we so focused on the millionaires, he asks. 
This is a hard one to answer because I do see all around me people working so incredibly hard to work for the millions, to listen to those voices directly. Parliamentarians who genuinely care, who tirelessly put their work above their own needs, are all around us. Why do we not see this enough, though? Why is the political carnage we see at Westminster taking centre stage when it should be putting our citizens' centre stage and making sure every single person is cared for? What we are witnessing is a dereliction of duty. That is why it's big news. What we are seeing not only silences the voices of the millions, but it highlights the millionaires playing their dangerous games and in turn puts ordinary people off engaging in politics as they see it as a sham. I feel frustrated that the disenfranchised will only be more distanced from decision-making when they see these so-called grown-ups playing political cosplay when they cannot play a standard board game without tipping it over in a sulk. I had a bit of experience this past week in keeping my cool while playing a game, a breakout game. The premise is that you are locked in a room with teammates, you must find clues around you and figure out how to unlock the room. It was a bit like the crystal maze. This was a birthday outing for my son and I was the only adult in a room of five boys aged 11. It was an experience, that's for sure. Listening was the most essential part to winning, in my opinion. That did not go quite to plan, not because they were not team players, but because they were more explorers than listeners. In a team situation, when trying to solve issues, Listening to each other is key. If we only ever want to go off and do our own solving in a silo, we have a problem. We got locked in. It was fun and hilarities were experienced, but also, most importantly, a good life lesson on teamwork and listening was highlighted. We must listen to the voices of all before concluding or we miss vital information. Is it a touch too black mirror for me to suggest that prime ministerial candidates are locked in a room and the winner is the one who solves the riddle, a riddle set by the public like how to look after humans successfully? A task I am not sure the UK government would take at all seriously. I experienced that mistreatment of people during a Department for Work and Pensions, DWP, assessment for a family member last week. I'm still aghast at the inhumane treatment of our most vulnerable, the disdain the call handlers seem to have, and the system which is designed to disadvantage people more than they already are. People who are sick, disabled and mentally vulnerable are treated as a financial burden. I had emails pouring in after a tweet in which I described the experience. From all over the UK, people got in touch and I'm just so sorry that not everyone will get the opportunity to deal with the Scottish Social Security system. I have dealt with it. And my goodness, it is a whole other experience and it certainly does have fairness, dignity and respect at its heart.
This was set up by the Scottish Government to have the voices of users at its core, a listening exercise carried out to ensure real solutions and a delivery fit for purpose for the millions. Teamwork and problem-solving are not what we are seeing right now at the UK political level, and it's only getting worse. We are seeing the millionaires playing, but not listening. Meanwhile, folk are sanctioned for being late for DWP appointments and left without money for weeks, and folk who take home a wage are still struggling to heat their homes and put food on the table. All the while, these privileged contenders for power seem to take nothing seriously apart from themselves. What is going on when vulnerable people are asked if they can wipe their own bums over the phone by a cold-toned stranger to judge financial entitlement? But Liz Truss can scoop up £115,000 a year for life for six weeks' work as the worst Prime Minister in history. Next time, at the ballot box... Remember those who served the people and not those who served themselves. The millions, not the millionaires. This article was by Karen Adam. From The National, Wednesday 26th of October, from the news section, Cut health spending to fund police force, Union Chief tells Scottish Government, by Hamish Morrison. Health spending should not be protected at the expense of Police Scotland's budget, the head of the officers' union has said, as the force faces crippling austerity measures. Callum Steele, the General Secretary of the Scottish Police Federation, warned Police Scotland is standing on a financial precipice if expected cuts to its budget go ahead, which MSPs were warned could see officers pull back from critical services like community policing. He said the Scottish Government could not protect the health budget on the basis it would mean making deeper cuts to other parts of the state. Steele, who represents about 98% of cops in Scotland, said police officers picked up the slack from the cash-strapped ambulance services and working as pseudo-emergency mental health officers. Massive cuts forecast. Around 4,400 officer and civilian staff jobs are facing the axe over the next four years as the Scottish Government recommended major cuts to the policing budget. Meanwhile, the Scottish Government is planning to increase the NHS frontline budget by at least £2.5 billion over the same period, on top of a further £12.9 billion for health boards. Steele told The National, If the health budget is going to be protected, then the expectation is that other services, including the police, are going to take a disproportionate share of the cuts as a consequence of that but that will have a far greater impact on all of the other services than if the services were to take a fair share of the cuts together. At this time, police officers are effectively pseudo-community mental health practitioners. They're emergency mental health responders. They're also picking up the slack in the function of paramedics and all of the individuals that are not currently getting service from health will still look to the police service to perform that function. He told the BBC's Good Morning Scotland, that the Scottish Government should spend less on the health service to protect Police Scotland. He said he recognised the constraints on the Scottish Government's budget caused by devolution and said he would not make calls on the UK Government to increase public spending because he operated in the here and now. 
It comes after MSPs heard on Wednesday of the mammoth stress on Police Scotland's budget, with one SNP politician describing the warnings as stark. Even the future of the 101 non-emergency call service is being questioned, senior officers told the Holyrood Committee. Police Scotland's Deputy Chief Officer David Page set out the impact of inflation on the force's budget, saying there were very, very difficult decisions ahead. Page said, The vast majority of our budget is people, so any cuts in our budget will fall squarely on people, police and staff who make up Police Scotland. We're looking at things like having to pull back from the types of policing we do at the minute because we don't have the bodies to do it, to be quite frank. Things like community policing, campus cops, which incidents do we attend in terms of road policing. Saying the police often have to pick up the slack from other government agencies, he added, our ability to answer 999 calls, it will be slowed. The 101 service, do we continue with that? If we don't continue with the 101 service, all that will do is shift people into dialing 999. Response policing, digital forensics and public protection are all areas which will be squeezed, he said. He continued, there's a real concern we won't be able to discharge our duties as we currently do. The SNP's Fulton McGregor said the official's statements had been the starkest he had heard in his six years at Holyrood. We need to sit up and take note, he added. Justice Secretary Keith Brown said our largely fixed budgets and limited fiscal powers means the UK government needs to provide the Scottish government with sufficient funding to support public services and the economy in these difficult times. We have already made difficult choices to support pay offers in 2022-23, and rightly so, as our police workforce deserve this. While policing matters and budgetary prioritisation are always a matter for the Chief Constable, we remain fully committed to using the resources available to us to support the vital work of Police Scotland in delivering effective and responsive policing across Scotland. We will work with justice organisations including Police Scotland and the Scottish Police Authority to develop and coordinate their delivery plans in response to the high-level spending review allocations. Despite UK government austerity, we have increased police funding year-on-year since 2016-17 and have invested more than £10 billion in policing since the creation of Police Scotland in 2013. A Treasury spokesman said, The responsibility for funding public services is largely devolved across the UK but we have provided the Scottish Government with a record £41 billion per year for the next three years, the highest spending review settlement since devolution. Written by Hamish Morrison From the National, Thursday the 27th of October 2022 From the News section Nicola Sturgeon responds to reports that Glasgow's Loon Fung is front for Chinese police by Hamish Morrison Police are aware of allegations a secret Chinese police operation has been run from a Glasgow restaurant, the First Minister has confirmed. Nicola Sturgeon told MSPs on Thursday she had discussed with the Chief Constable of Police Scotland a report in the Times which claims Lun Fung in Sockey Hall Street is used as a front by the Chinese government who uses it as an unofficial police station. The manager of the restaurant denied the reports when approached for comment by the paper. Spanish human rights group Safeguard Defenders earlier this year released a list of 110 suspected secret cop shops run by the Chinese government across the world. Green's MSP Ross Greer asked the First Minister about the accusations, which he noted were raised just days after staff at the Chinese consulate in Manchester 
assaulted a pro-democracy protester. He said, Yesterday the Dutch government finally confirmed they are launching an investigation into the existence of undeclared Chinese state police bases across Europe, bases being used to attack dissidents and pro-democracy activists. The report that prompted this investigation confirmed that one of these bases is located in Glasgow. This comes just days after the Chinese consulate in Manchester dragged a protester inside the gates of the consulate, where he and his staff then assaulted him. And, after reports of students in Edinburgh who come from Hong Kong being targeted and intimidated by those associated with the Beijing regime, he asked to he asked to know if action was being taken by Scottish authorities to probe allegations against the restaurant, as well as to combat the wider intimidatory tactics of the Chinese government. Sturgeon replied, "I agree that these reports are deeply concerning, and I want to be very clear that we take them extremely seriously. Any foreign country operating in Scotland must abide by Scottish law. The Scottish government fully supports individuals' rights to free speech, freedom of expression." and that is also an extremely important principle. Obviously these matters require to be fully and properly investigated, and it would not be appropriate for me to go into too much detail, but I do know, and I know this is the result of a conversation I had just yesterday with the Chief Constable, that the police are aware of these reports. Of course, the police are operationally independent, and it would be up to them to determine what investigations would be appropriate, but they are aware of this, and I would repeat that those reports do require to be treated extremely seriously. The National understands police are not investigating reports of criminality in relation to the allegations. Speaking afterwards, Greer added, We must take a zero-tolerance approach to dictatorships like the one in Beijing, using their diplomatic presence here to harass and abuse pro-democracy activists and their families. A Home Office spokesperson said the department does not give detail on potential security threats and added, Reports of undeclared police stations operating in the UK are of course very concerning, and will be taken extremely seriously. Any foreign country operating on UK soil must abide by UK law. The protection of individuals in the UK is of the utmost importance, and any attempt to illegally repatriate individuals will not be tolerated. And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Thursday the 27th of October 2022, from the news section, Shell more than doubles third quarter profit to £8.2 billion by Adam Robertson. Oil giant Shell added almost $10 billion in extra profit as gas prices remained high. The business said that its adjusted earnings more than doubled to $9.5 billion, £8.2 billion, in the last three months to the end of September when compared with the year before. Profits are down compared with the company's second quarter where it made $11.5 billion. The company made big gains from selling expensive gas in the third quarter of the year, offsetting part of the fall in oil prices. Chief Executive Ben Van Burden said, We are delivering robust results at a time of ongoing volatility in global energy markets. Shell is now nine months into what is said to be the company's most profitable year. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine pushed European gas prices to an all-time high as the price of oil soared internationally. Between April and June, Shell reported record profits of over £9.8 billion. In total, it has reported £25 billion in 2022, which is more than double the amount it made over the first nine months of 2021. In May, Rishi Sunak introduced a windfall tax on oil and gas companies operating in the North Sea. 
However, this has not stopped Shell from handing out billions of dollars to its shareholders this year. Critics of Sunak's plan have said that they did not go far enough. On Thursday, Greenpeace called for a proper tax on the energy giant's profits, which it said could help insulate thousands of homes. While Shell continues to bank billions, how many more households need to be forced into fuel poverty before the government wakes up? The only way to address the interlocking cost of living, energy security and climate crises is a street-by-street rollout of home insulation combined with a massive lift in ambition for renewable energy, the campaign group's US, UK senior climate advisor Charlie Cronick said. Liberal Democrat leader Sir Ed Davey said, The Conservative government's refusal to properly tax those eye-watering profits is an insult to the families struggling to pay their energy bills. Even the CEO of Shell has admitted that oil and gas companies should be taxed more to help protect vulnerable households. Friends of the Air Scotland's oil and gas campaigner, Freya Aitchison, said the announcement showed the scale of pain being inflicted on people struggling with rising energy costs. She said, The announcement of yet another obscene profit for Shell shows the scale of the pain that these companies are inflicting on the public. While oil and gas companies continue to make record-breaking profits, ordinary people are facing skyrocketing energy bills and millions are being pushed into fuel poverty. Bosses and shareholders at Shell are being allowed to get even richer by exploiting one of our most basic needs. The Scottish Government must use the opportunity of its forthcoming energy strategy to chart a clear path away from fossil fuels and towards an energy system that is built on clean, reliable renewables. They must listen to the science which tells us that, the meet- that to meet climate targets in a fair way, fossil fuel extraction needs to be phased out in the next decade. Van Burden continued, We continue to strengthen Shell's portfolio through disciplined investment and transform the company for a low-carbon future. At the same time, we are working closer with governments and customers to address their short- and long-term energy needs. Today, we are announcing a new share buyback programme resulting in an additional ban, four billions of an additional $4 billion of distributions, which we expect to complete by our Q4, fourth quarter, 2022 results announcement. The news comes following a warning from the head of the National Grid, who warned British households that blackouts could be imposed between 4pm and 7pm on really, really cold winter weekdays. Pettigrew said January and February are the months when blackouts are most likely. And that report was by Adam Robertson. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.